1: Hey ready. Yeah. You saw the uh, amazing Jonathan documentary, didn't you? I did. You went and saw it at the big
2: opening. I did. I with, mean here in Vegas. Jonathan and Ben and, and uh, Anna. They were in the Hizzy. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Anastasia. Do yes. they call her Anna in the in the movie? They do. They call her Anna's supposed to Anna. I always call her Anastasia. Anyways, that is uh, that is Amazing Jonathan's wife. Amazing Jonathan documentary begins as a seemingly ordinary profile, following the final tour of a dying magician, but becomes a bizarre journey as filmmaker Ben Berman struggles to separate truth from fiction. The Amazing Jonathan documentary begins as a profile of the uniquely deranged magician who built a career out of shock and deception in the eighties, becomes the bizarre story of the unraveling of a documentarian. That- it does. It shifts
3: yeah it shifts
1: it shift's crazy it shift's crazy, and it's on Hulu right now amazing- uh, and when you watch it right at the beginning, I come in, yeah, I give my word of wisdom, I go away, so you can see me right at the beginning, and then you're done with me uh that's on Hulu, amazing Jonathan documentary uh, available uh well it's, it's it's available now forever and uh movie played at sundance ben berman is a comedy director on shows like comedy bang bang and lady dynamite jonathan you all know he's been on our show it is a nutty nutty documentary which i've not seen yet uh, and i'll tell you I, it may seem weird that i'm uh, pushing something i didn't see i'm really uncomfortable seeing anything that i'm in right so I, i've heard this is really interesting and I want to see it. I'm afraid to, because I, I don't like to break that rule. But maybe I will, because it seems so interesting. But anyway, Jarrah, kick it. This is Penn Sunday School. And to our listening ears, oh, all nature and round us the music of the sleeves. This Penn is Penn
0: Sunday School.
3: Brothers and sisters, welcome to Penn Sunday School. We are broadcasting from Show Creator Studios South here in Las Vegas. Michael Godot is in Kentucky, and I'm Matt Donnelly. And today, Penn talks about the uh, Woodstock documentary on the 50th anniversary of Woodstock. We also have plenty of Penn & to catch up on, and we might even get a little Sarah Silverman action. Maybe, maybe. maybe. Here he is preaching the love, Pen Gillette. Woohoo! Yeah, yeah.
1: Preaching loves what I'm doing. Uh, let's start with Woodstock. Yeah. By the time I got to Woodstock, we were half a million strong. Wrote Joni Mitchell. Yeah. By the time we got to Woodstock, we were half a million strong. Wrote Joni Mitchell, who was not there. No, she was doing a show in New York. Oh, funny. She was on the Dick Cavett show, but she writes. Woodstock in the first person. By the time we got to Woodstock, and I dreamed I saw the bomber jet planes running shotgun in the sky, turning into butterflies above our nation. She wasn't there. I could have written Woodstock just as validly as Joni Mitchell.
3: I also like, uh, uh, I've been listening to uh, Cocaine and Rhinestones podcast. Have you heard about this podcast? Uh, Yeah. It's got a Tyler Mahan Co. just does great. Well, he's David Allen Coe's son. Is he? Yeah. Okay, explains everything, doesn't it? Yeah, he's because he tells stories. He always says like, "We've all heard these stories," and I'm like, well, "I've heard none of these stories." Yeah, yeah. And he gives really great in-depth looks examining stories about different songwriters and their songs. And what I, what I love about it, and what I think you would love about it, is that the last half of the podcast, he calls his liner notes. He shows his work. Oh yeah, he shows his work and all of his sources and stuff, and already starts like answering hate mail in advance, and it's really great. But he really shows like where he got all of his information from and he is
1: David Allen Coe's son.
3: He's he's really good at this thing. I mean, it's just it's a seasonal thing. He's did a season of it and he's hopefully gonna do another season of it.
1: And I was uh, I was asked the other day. We were, yeah. we were out, and I said that uh, as I said on the show, Alice Cooper yeah. said craziest person in rock and roll, without a doubt, John Ann Yeah. Keith Moon, Keith Richards, not even on the radar, right. John Ann But craziest person of all time that he ever met. Yeah, he says, uh, was Salvador Dali. Right. Says, no one can touch Salvador Dali. So I would, it was turned around on me. Yeah. You know, you've met a lot of crazy motherfuckers. Who's
3: the craziest?
1: David Allen Coe. Yeah. So David Allen Coe's son would have stories, I would
3: imagine. Yeah. But well, One of the things he gets into is, is uh, songwriting and that like we used to, uh, like modern audiences, we don't have an appetite for people to do songwriting from different people's perspectives.
1: No, not at all there's that incredible Randy Newman story, yeah, which I'm going to tell very, very badly. Because okay. I want to tell you where my source is. I'll show my work. Mm-hmm. Uh, I read an interview with Randy Newman, I believe, when I was still in high school in the 70s, or the early 70s. Yeah. And um, Randy Newman was teaching a songwriting course. And uh, he started out by saying, let's write a song from Hitler's point of view, because Hitler didn't think he was a bad person. And someone raises their hand and goes, Hitler was a very bad person. And Randy goes, yes, but he didn't think he was a bad person. And they go, yeah, but he was. <laughs> and Ran- and Randy says something like, yes, he killed part of my family Yeah, in concentration camps. That's what we're talking about. How can you ignore that? And then Randy finally ends the class Ooh. by saying there's two things I believe. One, I'm not crazy. Two, there's no God. Class dismissed. Something like that. <laughs> um, but yes, uh, for instance, uh, Randy Newman wrote, and Randy Newman's the example for this. Yeah. Randy Newman wrote the, the album Rednecks. Do you know the album Rednecks? I don't. You might want to give it a listen. Yeah. It's an amazing album, all written from the point of view of uh, people we would call Rednecks. I want to point out that I am aware that Rednecks is a, uh, is a derogatory term yeah. that I don't like to use without underlining it. I mean, I, yeah. think, I think it's, uh, I won't say it's equivalent of other racial slurs because you, you can't really rank them. They all have they all have a different horror to them. They're all beautiful, unique snowflakes. <laughs> exactly, each and every slur. But um, uh, Rednecks a bad one. But the yeah. album the album's called uh, Rednecks and it's it, it's 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 an incredible record. Yeah, I just listened to it again a little while ago. It's an incredible record. But writing songs from other people's point of view is really out of fashion. It's always considered to be first person, as is comedy, right. Comedy, you really can't go out as other people. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. Uh, Sarah Silverman used to do a character who was a racist. Yeah. That was part of her character. Yeah. And she felt she was doing, I don't know why Sarah Silverman did a thing uh, many years ago in blackface. Yeah. And uh, now it's possible. I, I'm not going to, I don't, I'm not reporting this. Yeah. Because I don't have any information. I want to just talk about
3: how it made me feel. I'm yeah so I'll say that she was on the Bill Simmons podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh she she just kind of offhandedly confessed like hey, you know I was supposed to shoot this movie. Uh it was very recent and uh the night before they just someone did a you know googling or whatever mm-hmm. and found a cl- a picture of Sarah Silverman in blackface from her old Comedy Central show mm-hmm. and then said we're not going to work with you.
1: Yeah. But what I'm wondering is when she was in blackface yeah uh, was she in blackface as Sarah Silverman saying being in blackface is a good thing? No. Or was she in
3: blackface as a character? She's in blackface as a character going directly at racism. Right. The the sketch she was in was on the right side of history. It wasn't on the wrong side of history. But
1: that doesn't matter. But I saw a movie where Stanley Tucci was in a Nazi uniform. Right. Stanley Tucci in a Nazi uniform. Do we now say
3: Stanley Tucci should have never put on that Nazi uniform? I know, I mean, it's crazy to even discuss it, because obviously you did a movie about that, and someone's going to portray things in movies. Yeah, I mean, there's, I mean, uh, the guy who's uh,
1: one of the um, stars of my favorite show on TV now, yeah. which is uh, uh, Perpetual Grace Limited. Yeah. Steve Conrad, I'm going to have Steve Conrad on here. Really? Yeah, he's going to do a whole uh, two shows with us. Awesome. I'll tell you when soon, but he's going
3: to do that. Oh, that's very uh, exciting.
1: Perpetual Grace Limited. Uh, there is the, one of the actors yeah. plays Charlie Manson in uh, in uh, Once Upon a Time in uh, Hollywood. Right. If you play Charlie Manson, are you then in that case? Now, of course, her, her show was called The Sarah Silverman Show. Yes. But it's so, so strange. I mean, if you talk about um, uh Ruby, Don't Take Your Love to Town. Right. Kenny Rogers is singing as a wheelchair vet. Yeah. It wasn't me who started that old crazy Asian war. And of course, he couldn't see He has to sing to someone else because we know that Kenny Rogers himself did start that crazy Asian war. <laughs> so he, he sings as the wheelchair. It wasn't me who started that old crazy Asian war. But Kenny Rogers, of course, as we all know, Gulf, Gulf of Tonkin, yeah. started The crazy Asian. (laughs) Right, right, right. One of, by the way, uh, one of my two favorite lines in pop music from the 70s. Yeah. It wasn't me who started that old crazy Asian war. Old crazy Asian war. Fabulous. (laughs) And the other one is Eric Burden. Yeah. Warm San Francisco nights. It's the American dream includes Indians. What better line could there be than that? I think it's American (laughs) dream includes Indians too. Yeah. He just says out of the blue. Love it. That's, that. that's writing. Yeah. It's weird. So Joni Mitchell writes, by the time we got to Woodstock, we were half a million strong. And then I was coming out and kind of busting her on not being there. But she is writing from the point of view of someone who was at Woodstock, which is completely valid. Yeah. I was wrong, but I was making a joke. I know. Yeah, yeah, uh, Also, Sarah Silverman, let's go back to this a little bit. We're going to tie Sarah Silverman, Woodstock, Jody Mitchell all together. Look at us go. One little ball of wax. Um, uh, You're welcome in advance, listeners. <laughs> Sarah Silverman's, uh, w- apology is not the right word. Sarah Silverman's rumination on her possibly being fired for this. Yes. Was one of the most measured, um, thoughtful, statements I have ever read by celebrity. First of all, she did not say she was fired for this absolutely. She didn't know for sure she was. Yeah. She just thought maybe she was. Second of all, she said the movie was great and the actor they got to replace her was wonderful and the movie was still going to be great. Gracious, gracious, gracious. And then she talked about how she didn't feel good about having done the blackface. She essentially agreed with them. And then made a very measured comment about how it's possible that pointing out something someone else did wrong does not necessarily prove that you're a good person. I'm putting it in my own words.
3: Yeah, yeah. But that's, I mean, that's really.
1: And I just went, wow, this is the perfect example
3: of not fighting fire with fire. She's very good at that. Very good. And whenever she's not, she's an excellent comedian. Hilarious. But when she also just speaks truthfully, it really just, uh, she refuses to eliminate nuance. Yes. And even when talking
1: about a Twitter war, she will not eliminate eliminate nuance. Right. Uh, She's wonderful. Yeah. She's one of the best of us. And uh, I don't know the details of this, and I don't even understand, I could not pretend to understand the historical significance of blackface. You know, right? I I do know that um, "Love and Theft," the Bob Dylan record. Boy, it's been a long time mentioned Dylan, hasn't it? I'm (laughs) going to tie them in. "Love and Theft," the Bob Dylan album, is taking a title from a uh, from a uh, book about minstrel shows. Yeah, and the music of that time becomes a very interesting uh, uh, amalgamation of hillbilly music. Hillbilly is probably another one of those words yeah. we don't feel comfortable with. One of the reasons you changed.
3: Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah.
1: But I mean, that's the kind of music. You know, there's race music and there's hillbilly music. And all of that starts to build rock and roll in country western. So Sarah, uh, you know, our, our heart's with you. Uh, I
3: think it's tough, in, you know, modern,
1: modern day. But she also doesn't just, it, she does a mea culpa she does say it's her fault, but not with this horrible groveling, exactly. but more, more pensively and more thoughtfully.
3: Yeah. So I think, you know, I think a couple of things like living in tougher political climates make us examine things harder and we go through periods of political correctness and that's always comes in waves, right? Talking to a lot of my friends privately, I actually talk about like, you know, uh, uh, you know, you you can, you can gain privileges and you can lose privileges. Right. And. Uh, I've noticed it from my own podcasts of people being more sensitive to material that we do sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I'm in agreement of losing certain privileges, right? like uh, as a as a heterosexual white male. Mm-hmm. you know, but I believe in comedy. you can make fun of anything if you have the if you have the right intention kind of thing mm-hmm. However, you know, like when we had an African American president advocating for gay rights, and the world seemed like we moved towards progressive things that way. I certainly get a lot more freedom to joke around, however the hell I want, yeah. during those times. So when the tide goes the other way and we don't trust the old, uh, old white guys to get it right, yeah, I'm going to lose privileges for that. Yep, and I kind of understand that being the case.
1: We are all, uh, we are all. That's really nicely put. We're all in a way punished for Trump.
3: Yeah, and should be. Yeah. You know, I'm telling you one thing:
1: if my dad were alive, yeah, Trump would not have been president. <laughs> It happened on our watch. Exactly. So we should be punished for that. I, yeah. I can
3: see that. And I think even now, like looking back, like I remember the Sarah Silverman program. I remember how edgy I thought it was. And she certainly made that decision knowing it would be edgy. Uh-huh. You know, that was the same thing where her her alarm was, the first opening scene was her alarm was set to nine eleven you know, and she woke up to that, you know, whatever. And she was younger and that was like, and I was I was younger and that was considered like totally rebellious and it was fantastic to see Comedy Central, you know, kicking shit around kind of thing. But as I'm getting older, I'm realizing even looking back at my, my old Night Live sketches, everything else that you consider of the era. I think both, I would love to see people kind of really look at comedy for its intention more often than not. Mm-hmm. And as comedians, I think you have to admit I, was, I almost said we, but I, I consider myself a comedian. Um, and I consider you a comedian too. Thanks. Thanks, buddy. You're never ahead of the curve. Everything you're doing is of its time. Mm-hmm. And you might think you're ahead of the curve, but as soon as you look back on it, it never was. And if you look back at Sarah Silverman's show back then, it doesn't seem like it was ahead of his time. It just seems like that's the way you kicked shit in that time. Yeah. You know, like, and I think like you – it's so easy to be condescendingly arrogant because that's what it actually comes down to that. Like this is the way everyone is at this time in this moment in time, but I'm seeing the light. I'm going to use comedy to kick shit in people's face.
1: But the other thing is also going back in time and judging is such an impossible thing to do. Oh, absolutely. To go back. I just watched uh, Lenny Bruce pilot. Oh, From 1959 Yeah, that Lenny Bruce did uh, an hour and a half pilot, which is fabulous. But um, you could not go back and say uh, Lenny Bruce was unenlightened or right. Lenny Bruce was – or the way he talked was stupid. Right. Because you're not during that
3: time. Yes.
1: Uh, you can speak at the time. But, I mean, it's like reading Moby Dick and saying he doesn't show compassion for the ecology of the whale. Well, well, of course he doesn't. Yeah. You know what I mean? Uh, it's it's very, very weird because you we want to celebrate people who are out of their time. But that doesn't mean we condemn people who are in their time.
3: That's, yeah. That's very well said. It is, And it is both. It needs to be an agreement kind of on all sides there. Because, like, yeah, there's no way you can go back, you know, and— Be offended now for airplane. Yeah. You know, it's just, it's just not, it's, it doesn't serve any purpose.
1: But we have this, uh, we have this gutcha feeling that if you can find something that someone did, that's a transgression, somehow it's supposed to make you feel better. Yes. Like, you know, Tom Hanks is supposed to be so gentle, but back in 1975, he made this joke. Yeah, I use Tom Hanks as an example because that's someone we won't find anything on ever, <laughs> which maybe negates our whole point. Maybe if you're really a good person all the time, you're
3: totally okay. But who is Tom Hanks? But that's yeah, end but, of list. But that's not a comedian's job. That's true. You know, like like I think like you have to. I think you know. I think, they are comedian stuff is of its time, but it also exposes how we feel, and and oftentimes what you're getting a laugh for is by hitting a gray area. Yeah. And by making people kind of examine both sides of an equation of not necessarily their opinion, but the passion or the way they go about exploring that opinion. Yeah. So I think, yeah. Anyways, Sarah Silverman's much better at it than, than, than I am. But. Sarah Silverman's much better at it than
1: anyone. And, and I hope that Sarah Silverman's uh, nuanced honesty yeah. and naked kindness yeah. I hope that uh, those things catch on. Yeah. I hope that she is rewarded for that. Even rewarded to the point of not talking about the time stuff, but also saying they may have chosen to put me off this movie for this reason. It's still a good movie. The actor that replaced me is wonderful. Right. Jesus Christ. Yeah. That is a level of beauty that people are not hitting, and let's all use Sarah Silverman as an inspiration. Yeah. Let's try to be that way. Man, I mean, this is, uh, I haven't, why isn't she president? Why couldn't Sarah Silverman be president? Oh boy, we get to do an ad.
0: What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify?
1: When's the last time you really slept great? I will tell you the last time I slept great. Last night. Boom. You know what I'm sleeping on? A sleep, sleep number bet? Absolutely. I sleep really well. You know, I just went to, my, my, my back was yeah. a little bit, was waking up a little sore mm-hmm. because I thought, uh, I, I, just, I had just been moving, I've been swimming a lot, my mm-hmm. back was making up a little bit sore. So I said, maybe my mattress is a little bit too uh, flaccid. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe just a little bit too soft. Yeah. So I went. It up a notch. Hit the, went out all the way up to 90% Whoa. of my sleep number bed. And the back thing poof, went away. Beautiful. Wow. And then after my back's good for a while, I feel like I want to lay down a little bit more. I'll go back to a little softer, go back to 65. Now, sleep number will tell you that the important thing about sleep number beds is that each side of the bed can be different. Right. So you and your sleeping partner. Yes. Can have different firmness on the side of the bed. And that's really important. Yeah. But there's also this off off label use of changing it for yourself, which I use all the time. Right now at Sleep Number Stores, it's the biggest sale of the year. All beds are on sale, and Queen Mattresses started only $8.99. $899. My sleep number setting changes all the time. I adjust it depending on how I feel, and I get a great night's sleep. I was just at a very, 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 very nice hotel in Los Angeles. They had the greatest beds in the world, except for mine. Sleep number bed's really good. I wish your mattress could be firmer or softer. That's what sleep number does. Either way, will you love it? Just ask JD Power. Sleep number has been ranked number one in customer satisfaction and mattress. For 2018 award information, uh, visit jdpower.org. I love my Sleep Number bed, and it's now 90. I might go to 100 because my back felt so good this morning. Come on in for the biggest sale of the year. For a limited time, save 50% on a Sleep Number 360 limited edition smart bed. You'll only find Sleep Number, one of their 575 Sleep Number stores nationwide. Find the one nearest to you at sleepnumber.com slash pen. That's sleepnumber.com slash pen. Sleep a
3: you Sleep I was so late. Uh,
1: look at me. Sleep a I'm conducting all the time on those. All you gotta do is watch the conductor and you'll be fine. There we go. They'll keep you right together. I'll even I'll even point you when you come in. I don't you don't have to count all the rest when you're playing timpani. I'll point you in. I'll tell you, what do you think of uh, Stamps.com? Love Stamps.com. So great, aren't they? No one really has time to go to the post office. You're busy. Who's got the time for traffic, parking, lugging all your mail and packages? It's a real hassle. That's why you need Stamps.com, one of the most popular time-saving tools for small businesses. Stamps.com eliminates trips to the post office and saves you money with discounts that you can't get at the post office. How's that possible, ready? It's impossible.
2: I heard it was a magic glove of jewels.
1: Really? Yeah. <laughs> Wow. So Stamps.com has a magic glove of jewels that allows them to be cheaper than the post office. (laughs) Thanos. Stamps.com brings all the amazing service of the U.S. post office right to your computer, whether you're a small office sending invoices or an online seller shipping out products, which you are, Matt Donnelly. I am. An online seller shipping out products. And as an online seller shipping out products, how much do you like Stamps.com?
3: It's amazing. It's super convenient. We wouldn't be doing, uh, we wouldn't be an online seller of products if it weren't for stamps.com.
1: And you can just call the post office, tell them to come pick up your stuff, right? Yeah, the post office isn't on it. They get it. Yeah. It's really weird. Yeah, it's pretty really great. Really great. With stamps.com, you get five cents off every first class stamp, up to 40% off priority mail. Feels not like to mention, oh, I won't mention that, I guess. Uh, <laughs> oh, no, it means to mention it when it says not to mention it. Yeah. It's a fraction of the cost of those expensive postage meters who also require more commitment than your college girlfriend. <laughs> uh stamps.com is a no-brainer, saving you time and money. It's no wonder over seven hundred thousand small businesses already use stamps.com. Right now, our listeners get a special office that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale without any long-term commitment. Woohoo! Let's go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in pen. That's stamps.com. Enter. P E N N. You got that right. You got that right. We're doing also the F U U U and U. We, are, no, we doing, are giving
2: the awards today.
3: We are you, doing votepen.com. Do you have the
2: awards? I yeah.
3: Don't. You have the announcement? Is it say whether they're announcing it here or is it just being announced in general to the general public on Wednesday?
2: I think it's being announced out of Dustin's hotel room.
3: Okay. <laughs> oh.
1: Ah, uh, the amazing Jonathan documentary. Uh, you have both seen it. It's nuts. I'm comfortable seeing it. I'm uncomfortable seeing because I'm in it. Yeah, I'm not in it much, right?
3: You're not. You're just in the very talk, beginning. Yeah, I thought I could just ignore that. Other order. people they interview react very weirdly to some of his questions, and they're in it more. And I think maybe, maybe you underreacted to some of the things he maybe he brought up. I see. I see. I so just, you're in it early, and then we don't. I just see say he's got again. nothing to
1: lose, right? Yeah, which is certainly true. He's already lost his toes. <laughs> Uh, the Amazing Jonathan documentary is now on Hulu. Check it out. begins as a profile of a uniquely deranged magician who built a career out of shock and deception in the 80s, but it's become a bizarre story about unraveling of his documentarian. Amazing Jonathan was the reverent magic act, rose to popularity, landing one of the longest residencies in Las Vegas. However, in 2014, Jonathan was diagnosed with a terminal heart condition given only one year to live. to retire his act. Fast forward to three years later, Jonathan is still alive, she's returned to the stage. Filmmaker Ben Berman sets out to capture the amazing Jonathan's comeback to her while peeling back the curtain his unique meth fueled life. A lot of meth. Uh, what are, What are the chances that uh, Jonathan was lying about his diagnosis?
3: That comes up in the documentary. Oh, it does? It does. Uh, the... it, doesn't, it doesn't answer it in the documentary. Mm-hmm. I begin to think the chances are pretty good. He was lying about it. I will say that there's something in the documentary that they don't, we're done. We can talk openly. Yes, we're not doing the ad right now. It's still the ad. It's still the ad. It's on Hulu. This will make people want to watch it. Go ahead, tell us. Well, they don't address the, the rumor, at least the, the kind of understanding about him is that there was a, a medical treatment that changed his outlook. Yes. And that's not really mentioned in the documentary. Right. And so, one of the bigger things is whether the documentary wants you to think it's a prank or leave that as part of the I see. deal. I see or not because I, I think i think at least more people feel like it is a prank now we know that jonathan is capable of crazy ass pranks we do know that and there's the there's story that i've uh, told that you know happened to me which is, i thought it was going to come up in, it kind of comes up in the documentary but not really about how he had faked his own death with his roommate he did
1: yeah he did and it's yeah. terrific
3: it's a horrific story. Horrific story. A story that I'm not willing to tell because it's not my story. Right. So he's definitely capable of some really top-level capital fucking crazy shit. He has faked his own death.
1: Yes. Before. Before. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's more likely to fake his own death than uh, than Andy Kaufman.
3: Yes. It, it yeah, yeah. What's I, crazy is his unapologetic attitude towards drugs. Uh, which he did on our show a lot. Yeah has absolutely changed and held up the trajectory of, of the way things typically would go for, for someone experiencing what he's experienced. I had a wonderful experience. I'm going to
1: tell this uh, story because I don't think Anastasia will be upset. Uh, Anastasia was backstage. She was backstage as my guest back in the monkey room. And she was talking. She was talking about Jonathan and said that the doctors had told him that what he was doing was keeping him alive. And it was strongly implying that the meth was keeping him alive. And it was helping him stay alive, even though his heart was only working at 10%. She was carrying on about this, how the doctors had told her this. Now, I had her backstage as my guest. Teller had two guests backstage as well. (laughs) And they had not said, they were introduced to her at the beginning, but she wasn't paying too much attention. And they were listening to her. I knew who Teller's guests were. Anastasia did not. Anastasia went on and on and on. And there was a heart surgeon, heart specialist convention (laughs) in town. And two of the people backstage were speakers from, uh, I think, the Mayo Clinic, uh, heart experts. They knew everything about heart. And uh, Anastasia didn't know that. So she'd been talking five, six, seven minutes about Jonathan and meth and how it was helping his heart. And I said, "Uh, doctor, do you want to weigh in on that? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> a really great moment. Very much like, uh, you know, uh, uh, Marshall McLuhan coming to the Woody Allen movie. You know, we actually have an expert but yes. people are just kind of bullshitting with friends. And uh, he said, well, yes, I'm, I'm in town for the uh, Heart Conference and I am lecturing here. And one of my lecture uh, things will be how can we get more of our heart patients on meth? Because we can save a lot of lives and prolong a lot of lives and give a <laughs> higher quality of life. So we're working very hard to get meth brought into the medical community uh, to help with heart stuff. And the other doctor said, yes, I'm lecturing on that same thing as a matter of fact. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, there's no doubt about it that if not for meth, uh, Jonathan's heart would be destroyed. Yeah.
3: Yeah. it was very funny. That's, her I mean, <laughs> I, but like I, when you're that demented all the time when you're that able to twist and turn even just for amusement just constantly Mm -hmm. when Jonathan is sober
1: which it's it's arguable whether I've ever seen him sober I don't know right when Jonathan is presenting himself as sober to me yeah uh, his information he gives you is so geared to his enjoyment of what he says and not tied to what he believes the truth to be right maybe
3: yeah maybe he doesn't know that's it. I think there's so many layers to these things that you've given so many twists and turns. Uh, it sure seems like like an example would, be, it would it'd be, if I wanted to keep doing meth, it'd be really convenient for me to tell my wife that's what's keeping me alive. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. And then how many times do you follow those twists and turns until you Somehow, I do not see Sarah Lowe
1: <laughs> backstage with heart surgeons <laughs> saying, yeah, you know, Matt's being kept alive by meth. <laughs> I think you might try lying to her about that. Right. Not sure she'd believe it. If she did believe it a little bit, not sure she'd repeat it. <laughs> not sure. Not sure, Sarah. <laughs> so it's on Hulu anyway. Yeah. Longest ad ever done in the history of the world.
2: All these questions <laughs> and more answered.
1: Yeah. On Hulu. On Hulu, the amazing Jonathan documentary. By um,
2: the way, one out of four documentary crews recommends this documentary. <laughs>
1: So uh, Stephen Banks and I
2: yes went to see Woodstock.
1: Now I want Stephen bought the tickets. It was one of these things called a fathom event, mm-hmm. you know, a special one night event, and they were showing the uh, nineteen ninety four director's cut documentary of Woodstock. So Stephen, let me know. He said, I would like very much for you to come see Woodstock with me on the 50th anniversary of Woodstock. And I went, oh, Jesus, in LA? He went, yeah. And then I looked at my calendar and I had a Disney pitch Thursday afternoon and I was shooting game shows all day Friday. I had to be in LA. So I told Stephen, I'll be your date. And Stephen uh, sent me a copy of the tickets he bought for us. He was kind enough to Purchased my ticket and sent me the copy of the ticket because he thought it was funny that he had bought us senior discounts to see Woodstock. (laughs) And then it struck me, will there be anybody that isn't a senior discount at Woodstock? Is there anybody under whatever? What's the age of senior discount? 55?
3: I think so. 55 or it could be, I don't know, could be 65, could is, be is, whatever.
1: It, was, can't be under, it can't be 65 because I'm not 65.
3: Right. Is there anybody under
1: 55 yeah. who wants to see Woodstock? And the answer is no. There's not one human being under 55 that wants to see Woodstock. <laughs> and I made that joke and we laughed. Steve and I went to see Woodstock yeah. in LA, Universal, i uh, the Universal uh, Walk, Universal Studios yeah. Walk. There's a theater there. We bought our tickets three weeks in advance. There were 25 people in theater. (laughs) And of those 25 people, we were the youngest. (laughs) And those 25 people looked exactly like you would expect the 25 people who went to see Woodstock on the 50th anniversary of Woodstock. We took a picture of us in front of the sign at Woodstock, uh, flashing, of course, peace signs. And Stephen Banks wore a, a peace sign medallion around his neck which I thought was wonderful. Um, Stephen Banks had been to Woodstock and had sat right on where the stage is. Once again, last year. Yeah. Not during it. And uh, listen to Hendrix, right? Where Hendrix had played. I can't tell you, you see, when the Woodstock movie came out. yeah, When Woodstock happened, I was 14. And the way I remember it, which I don't think could be true, is that some of my friends... We're driving to Woodstock because where I was in Massachusetts was about two hours from it. Right. They were driving to Woodstock, a couple of my older friends. And I think I considered going with them, although I may have made that up afterwards. Mm -hmm. But Woodstock, I knew about before it happened. And in some part of my mind, I could have gone. Right. Now, in the alternate reality, if I'd gone to Woodstock, my no drug, no alcohol thing might have broken down. Sure. So we might have had a different guy. Yeah. As, as the pendulette that sits here because of Woodstock, but the movie came out when I was 15. Now I think for people who the movie came out when they were 18 or the movie came out when they were 12, it's very, very different. Mm-hmm. The people I know that the movie came out when they were 15, the movie is the most important thing in the world. The album came out, the movie came out and the movie was rated R which means that none of us could get in following the rules. Right. Um, But we desperately wanted to see The Who and Hendrix and Crosby, Stills and Nash and Janice and Joe Cocker. So we all defied the rules and our parents. And I believe the movie theaters knew that only 15-year-olds wanted to see it. Right. So they weren't being very careful. So Stephen Banks, it was the first time Stephen Banks lied to his parents. They told him he could not see Woodstock. He lied to them, told him he was going somewhere else and wanted his friend to see Woodstock. To me, it wasn't the first time I lied to my
3: parents.
1: (laughs) My parents were not – they were not very hung up on when you see R-rated movies like Stephen Banks' parents. So I was just allowed to go and I was gigantic and, uh, you know. Oh, yeah. No one's going to – And I had long enough hair that I was just at Woodstock as far as it was concerned. Right. We went in to see our heroes, and then among our heroes were naked people. Mm -hmm. Naked people, skinny dipping, and free love. And I believe that my whole sexuality was defined by Woodstock. Yeah. Which means the the careful clipping of pubic hair and all that kind of stuff and shaving armpits and shaving pubic hair— that's not what triggers me, right? Not the uh, not that bear look, yeah. Because I saw the hippie chicks, yeah, and I saw the hippie guys, right. And everybody at Woodstock, uh, Stephen Banks and I pointed this out this morning. No fat people at Woodstock, not a one. You got you got Bob the Bear and canned heat, yeah, and you've got Leslie West in Mountain. But in the audience, not one fat guy, right? Just really no fat people, just thin. Healthy high people covered in mud and shit, <laughs> and mostly naked yeah uh, it's incredible how much essentially a drug orgy uh defined a lot of my sexuality and even morality yeah I heard long speeches these people gave about freedom that were given by people who were Tripping balls and had no idea what they were talking about, and were children that still stuck in my head as just wisdom. I see it now and say these are high children saying random shit, but I remembered every word of it. Yeah. <laughs> and it meant the world to me. Also, the performances. Now, I've been studying jazz now seriously for 20 years, and I've thought a lot about time and tempo and beats. And bands that I thought were really tight aren't. Uh, the Who set, and I'm not talking about anything about the Who's musicianship because the monitor situation was non-existent, but Keith and Pete could not be fighting more for where the tempo is. John Ann Whistle is rock solid all the way through. He does, His tempo does not waver. He's right where he should be, even when the speed up. I'll listen to you. He speeds up evenly, but there is a big battle for where the beat is between Keith and Pete, neither of paying any attention at all to where the beat is. Crosby still is a Nash. I think that Graham Nash is in tune, but on three-part harmony, one person being in tune, not that much help. <laughs> if two people are in tune, big help. One person in tune in three-part harmony, might as well be out of tune. Right. I also noticed that David Crosby is not playing the guitar. I think he's too high. He's resting his hand against it. And so everything's being played by Stephen Stills, who is uh, struggling to get through. John Sebastian does not seem to have any idea where he is. The Grease Band, behind Joe Cocker, uh, tight, 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 tight. Wow. They have no trouble playing. They're great. Canned Heat, who, incidentally, were rock critics, I believe, who got into playing music themselves. They're playing okay, playing simple stuff, but they're okay. My neighbor Santana has a 16 year old drummer who's phenomenal. He made me 16 years old. And I sat there watching this movie, which was an inspiration and life changing to me, and realized that nothing happened. They spent all this time on stage congratulating themselves. I can't believe we're doing this. What are they doing? (laughs) Taking drugs, listening to music? That's all they're doing. Yeah. There's no accomplishment. There's no civil rights march. There's a little bit of um, uh, anti-war stuff that just really is, I don't want to be drafted. Yeah. Not much else. Joan Baez tries desperately to interject some real political movement to the whole thing, and there is none. Yeah, uh, She says in an interview, she tried to talk to Janis Joplin about politics, and Janis Joplin was like, pass the Jack Daniels. You got any weed? Right. You know, uh, it's amazing. I you mean, know, people like Tim Harden, who you expect to have some sort of political point of view, is so high, his eyes aren't even focusing. You know, um, nothing happened. And during the rainstorm, if one of those hastily put up towers had fallen over, which I think it had a pretty good chance of doing, right, 75 people would have been killed. Our entire memory of that whole thing would have been different. Right. There were no fights. There were no knifing. Yeah. So what? <laughs> That's what I expect out of people. Right. You know, all, yeah. the, all this stuff is being said, 400,000 people together, man, and there's just isn't the violence happening. Well, 400,000 people uh, right now are together in Vegas, and there's not fights happening. Right. Uh, when I think about the sanitation there.
3: Oh, boy. Oh,
1: there's a scene with the guy cleaning out the portisans that I guess they put in, to be honest. But man, I mean, everybody was walking around in their own shit. People who were there say the smell was unbearable every second. And when Hendrix is playing at the end, the famous Star Spangled Banner, all that stuff, you know, there's no one in the audience. Almost no one. It was the last day, 6 a.m. Everyone had left. And he had like, uh, uh, and then there was an interview with John Fogarty who said they went on at 2.30 in the morning and everyone was asleep. And John Fogerty said, um, uh, anybody listening to us? And one guy lit a lighter and said, yeah, John! <laughs> and John Fogerty <laughs> said, we played our whole set just for him. <laughs> I also was thinking, and, and ready, you could speak to this, with the equipment they had at Woodstock, was anyone hearing the music? No. Nobody. Oh, you mean in the audience? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It was okay. It was okay. But the stage monitors were non-existent, right? I mean, could they hear anything on stage?
2: They're hearing stage volume. They're not hearing monitors.
1: Not even monitors at all. So they're just hearing. And are they, were the amps being actually heard by the audience? Or were there, was there a PA over the top of the whole?
2: There was a PA over the top. And that PA was rented for a long time afterwards. What do you mean? The cabinets were rented for a long time afterwards. It was it was a decent system. Oh, really?
1: Yeah. And the guys who organized it were uh, 24 years old, did the whole thing. It was done for $2 million. They keep talking. Here's what bothers me. They keep talking in the movie about how they're losing all the money because they opened up the fence and it's a free concert, right? They didn't collect tickets. Right. But they sold it out, and that money was gotten. Yeah. So, no— so what you're actually upset is a, is a ticket purchaser should be upset. Yes, yeah, other people got in free. Yes. But the, if, if Piff sells out his show yeah. and doesn't collect tickets at the door, it doesn't change his finances at all. No. Not at all. And that's said all the way through the movie. I don't know what that means because you don't have to collect a ticket to get the money for the ticket. Yeah, the money is gotten when the ticket is sold, as we know from disastrous festivals yeah. that didn't happen. They already have that money,
3: right? I guess. A, I guess a, in, it's not good to sit on a documentary and be like, "We could have made so much more money than we did."
1: Yeah, that's at right.
3: Twenty four. Yeah, that's like But also, good. they had
1: they had all their uh, problems. The other thing that bothers us from the cray uh, ray point of view. I wish we had talked to Dr. Clapper about this, it would have been funny, is they're talking about how the army has to get food in, and all the people are donating food, and all the food in all the supermarkets is gone. We have to get food to these kids. It's three days. <laughs> three days on healthy 18-year-olds.
3: Yeah. You don't have to get food. Especially if they're doing the drugs that... Half of the drugs in the state and you're not eating that time anyway. But they're talking about how this emergency
1: to get them food and the food's being brought to you free, man. Well, just don't eat. You really need to get them water. Yeah. Kinda. Three days you can do without water, but it's not healthy. Right. Okay. They need to get water once to everybody for that whole time. Yeah. And they don't need to get food to them. And probably considering the sanitation they had, probably better to give them no food than bad food. <laughs> my thinking, my thinking. And boy, the shots of Woodstock afterwards going through. Yeah. it It's so disgusting. And yet, for someone my age, would you have wanted to be there, Eddie? Nope.
2: Nope. At 18 years old? I don't even like going to the bathroom at a nice hotel. <laughs>
3: That? Yeah, although I was intimidated by these kinds of things, always like all my friends went to like the first Lollapalooza's and those kinds of things, and I never felt uh, incredibly motivated. If uh, basically if a friend was going to go, that said, hey, if you can scrape this together, we can go. But those were run really well,
1: right? Lollapalooza was run beautifully. Yeah, Lollapalooza we were not ankle deep in shit. No, no, no. Would you have wanted to be ankle deep in shit to hear hippies out of tune uh, play music out of tempo?
3: No, but at at eighteen, if you are asking me, if, am I going to go to a place where everyone's taking off their clothes? Yes, I want to go to that. At Would 18. you have been one of the guys sliding in mud naked? Probably at eighteen. Yeah, <laughs> definitely sliding in mud naked because you, you think be? you're invincible. You don't even if it's filth or whatever. I think you just kind of go like, nothing's nothing's bad's going to happen to me. And you probably were right. Yeah, but I've also
1: wondered why they haven't done more follow-ups. Like the couple that's there, there's not a couple. Like we live together in what you might call a commune, but we just like family. And yeah, we are like together, like we're here together. Yeah, but we're not a couple. It's not like commitment. Although we'll make it while we're here. Yeah, we make with other people, and there's not jealousy she's 16 and i guess it's been 2 years my parents are so square they're like really worried that there might be a lot of drug use and yeah i'm really high now it's that kind of stuff yeah i want to talk to that guy now <laughs> be like, I regret sitting down for no, that interview. That guy is, uh, what he's, he's, uh, well, it's, it's been 50 years and he was 16 there. So yeah, he's 66 years old. I just kind of want to know why they haven't tracked him down. They also talk all the way through the movie about the births that happened at Woodstock, which they have not been able to substantiate. Right. They, have, <laughs> they haven't found that anybody's born at Woodstock. Two people died. Um, but, uh, Uh, Nobody born at Woodstock that they can find, and it seems like if someone was born at Woodstock, they would have known it. I mean, definitely. If you were born at Woodstock, your parents would have told you
3: for sure. Yeah, Um, there would be a story in the. I was just saying, I would have told you about it by now. Yeah. yeah. So uh, I wouldn't have. After all these, funny you bring that up. I was born there. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. They came in, the Army hospital came in. They told the story of my mom and dad. I was born there. You would have brought that up earlier. I think so. Yeah. Um, so it's really funny because it's this defining moment in my life. And I realized that the pop music was all marketed to me. Mm-hmm. There was this moment, and this, I don't know if anybody else will understand this, but Shauna Na, you know, the 50s cover band, comes on and they're wearing costumes. And I'm telling you, for the first time, 64 years old, I've listened to Woodstock hundreds of times. I've seen the movie several times. I looked at what I would at Sean and I went, uh, It's amazing that they're wearing costumes. Yeah. They're wearing these costumes. And then I paused and went, So's the who? Yeah. The who are wearing costumes? He's wearing that, Pete's wearing that white jumpsuit. And Rogers got the tie-dyed fringe jacket with his stomach muscles showing. They they weren't out mowing the lawn and walked on stage. <laughs> They're wearing costumes. And I thought, well, Crosby still's a Nash, they got the poncho and the fringe jacket. They're wearing costumes. Hendrix, he's wearing a costume. This is all just show business. And somehow I'd separated Woodstock. These were heroes walking on stage doing something. It was just an outdoor concert where people did drugs. How in the world did that end up feeling I get to find my life?
3: Man, if 15-year-old you could listen to this right now,
1: you'd be like, what? Did I really become this guy? Wouldn't you love to hear that argument between 15-year-old me and me now? Oh, yeah. But we'd still be anti-drug. We'd both be anti-drug. Yeah. Yeah. But saying the who was not playing together, these are, these are, these are the best musicians in the world, yeah. man. What's yeah. wrong with you? Yeah. And I, you know, I know Roger Daltrey, you know, and I, I respect him very much, a wonderful performer. But that shifting, which has taken me 50 years to shift, I always thought, I mean, I, I'm talking about even 20 years ago. I thought that I was in show business and the who was something else. Right. I didn't truly understand it was all just show business. I started to learn that when the turtles played with the mothers. Because I saw the turtles as being show business, mothers of invention being art. Right. I started starting to realize it's all show business. Realizing that the who were wearing costumes was a mind-blowing thing. Yeah. And then Stephen Banks on Friday night, we all went out to eat, but Stephen Banks stayed home. He's got the big box set of Woodstock. He looked at his watch and timed the exact moment that Credence went on stage. And he then went out. He corrected for time difference, right? So they went on at 2.30 a.m. At 11.30 in the evening in L.A., he went out in his backyard on the grass, laid on the ground, put on headphones, and listened to Credence Clearwater Revival in exactly 50 years after they played at Woodstock, in his backyard, on headphones, on his iPad, on his, you know, his iPhone. Yeah. uh, In his backyard. He said all he was missing was a naked hippie chick next to him. (laughs) And uh, it's amazing. Stephen Banks never done a drug in his life. Yeah. You know, Stephen Banks, Billy the Mime, you know, wrote wrote SpongeBob. It's amazing how for that little pocket of people – that movie was so important, and it's so difficult when someone's 40 years old. I mean, explaining to Piff what Woodstock meant to me is impossible. Right. No understanding whatsoever. If someone is 40 years old, they can't even see it. They compare it to Lollapalooza, one of those things, which are also old concerts. Right. Really old. But it's, it's, it, and it wasn't a different thing. It was just less competently done. But it's supposed to mean something. You know, Abby Hoffman wrote the book Woodstock Nation. And and by the way, it didn't even happen in Woodstock. Right. It happened in Bethel.
3: But that's not as fun to say.
1: Bethel Nation. No, it was only called Woodstock because, you know, Bob Dylan lived there. Yeah. And Bob Dylan during Woodstock was just sitting home with his feet up. <laughs> he didn't go into all the shit. Right. And Alvin Lee, ten years after playing "Going Home" and saying every Elvis title he can think of while he's playing the same four notes on the guitar, is awful. <laughs> Sorry, Alvin, you don't shine at
3: Woodstock. Uh, anything else you want to wrap up here? Uh, no, I'm trying to. We I'm want gonna, to get to fool I'm us. To fool we did stuff. We'll get to that another time. Get to that. I can announce now officially that I'm going to be on the show. Okay, good. When are you gonna be on? Uh September 9th. September 9th. there'll be uh
1: there'll be uh Matt Donnelly on Fool Us, September 9th.
3: Coincidentally, the last day you can vote pen dot com is also the ninth. So celebrate by watching Fool Us that night. Yeah, yeah,
1: and, and vote uh votepen dot com, dot com. Make Penn and Teller the number one show in Las Vegas, according to USA Today. Yeah. And you. What's business? That was Penn Sunday school. Cha cha cha. You become naked at Woodstock.
3: I did not expect that to be your reaction to 50 years of Woodstock. You didn't? No. I've always known it's a special thing to you. It's very special. still is.
2: Yeah
1: still is very special. It's to my heart. It's nostalgia. But there's other stuff I've learned over the years.
3: That's not wrong. No, it's not wrong at all. I still
1: love it. And by the way, anybody wants to go skinny dipping, let me know. Yeah.
3: That hasn't changed.
1: (laughs) Not at all. Peace and love, man.
3: Jason Ellis here from the Jason Ellis Show podcast, reminding you that my podcast, new episodes every Wednesday, downloadable where all podcasts are available. Come see my friends, Michael and Kevin, as we talk to you about what's awesome, what sucks, fitness, fighting, parenting, life, spin kicks, LGBTQ community, how to defend yourself against a shark if it attacks you out of nowhere, and much,
2: much more. So come join us.